Grow Great is a city government leadership podcast with Lisa Norris and me, Randy Cantrell. Each week we share insights, experiences, and wisdom to help you and your leadership grow great. Our website is growgreat.com. Our guest today is City Manager Steve Dye. Steve is the City Manager for Grand Prairie, Texas. We welcome Steve to the show. All right. We've, as you heard, we have Steve Dye here. He's our City Manager. Um, many of you probably think he grew up in like Chicago or New York City because he's our big dog. Uh, but I know your story, Steve, and you did not do those things. You grew up in a small town with, I believe, one stoplight because I've driven through it. And you were actually on a farm ranching. Why don't you tell people a little bit about your background and your story? Yeah, you bet, Lisa. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. And I grew up about as far from New York and Chicago <laughs> as you can get. And no, we didn't have a stoplight, but we have one yellow blinking light. So uh, you don't have to stop though. So I grew up uh, on the Palo Duro Canyon, Claude, Texas, up in the Texas Panhandle, just a, a great place to grow up, grew up on a farm and a ranch. And uh, all I ever wanted to do besides farm and ranch was be a police officer. And uh, had I not become a police officer, then I would have been back in the Panhandle uh, in that environment. Just a, a great group of folks out in West Texas. Why All did right. you want to be a police officer? Yeah, I was just going to say. You know, Randy, that's a that's a great question. I don't know. My mom just <laughs> said from the time I could walk and talk, that's all I was interested in. I don't know exactly why, but I think as I've gotten older and matured, I think for whatever reason, probably good parenting and in a good environment, I just always had a heart to serve others. Uh, I love the action and excitement. You know, I grew up watching Adam 12. Uh, you know, oh my after, gosh, you're dating uh, yourself. <laughs> after my homework was done and my sports uh, practice was over with, man, I had to watch Adam 12. So I just always loved the the policing profession in chasing the bad guys to help protect our society, but just all the opportunities that those officers would have to help people. And I think that's probably what drew me. And I, I could not have uh, lived a better dream, quite quite frankly. I'm, I, I always count my blessings that I've been able to live that dream that, that you know, a lot of people don't get to do. And uh, it took a lot of hard work. You know, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. I drove eight hours from home to get a great criminal justice education at Sam Houston State University. I worked full-time, 40 hours a week during college, summers and Christmas to pay uh, for my education. So, I worked for it, but I just really wanted to get that basis of foundation of that education. And certainly, as we all know now, college, more than educating, you really teaches you maturity, uh, achieving a goal or, or multiple goals and, you know, exposure to diversity uh, during my college years, which really helped me, I think, be a better police officer. Where I grew up, it was very homogenous, all white community and and my first real exposure to diversity was in those college years, which just was tremendously uh, beneficial to me. Well, let's talk about a little bit how you got from Claude to city manager in Grand Prairie. Just yeah. give us kind of a quick synopsis for the listeners so they know, because we've talked about that. Um, we've talked about different things on our leader, leadership recipe. We've talked about going from an informal leader where you don't have a title and you can still influence mm -hmm. to when you do have influence and authority through those titles. But let's talk about how you got from there to here. Uh, my career path makes absolutely no sense. 
but it, it goes back to what I tell my daughters, you know, don't, don't complicate success. To me, it's really just two things. Work really hard and get along with everybody around you. You know, so I never espoused to be a sergeant, much less a chief of police, never dreamed of being a city manager. But, you know, I worked hard and in, in, in my values, which are Christian values, I just was led to go where I went for a life of service. It's not about me. Uh, you know, in, in, in my world, God just laughs at the plans that we make for ourselves because he has the ultimate plan. But as I worked through this, my wife of 30, almost 32 years really encouraged me to promote. I think she saw leadership ability in me that I didn't even see in myself. I was always an informal leader as a police officer, but worked 20 years at the line level. I finally promoted. And then in seven months uh, at the Garland Police Department, I went from uh, first line supervision to being an assistant chief of police. Uh, five and a half years later, became a, a, a chief of police in Colleyville. In 2011, went to Grand Prairie, uh, came here as, as the chief of police. And, you know, my, my old uh, city manager, my old boss, Tom Hart, great mentor and friend, asked me six or seven years ago, Steve, have you ever thought about being a city manager? And I just laughed at him. I said, Tom, I'm a cop. <laughs> of course not. I, I don't need to be a city manager. But, you know, it did get me to thinking. And he saw something again in me. And he told me, Steve, you very successfully led our police department. You've led the cultural transformation of the organization. And I know you'd be great leading the city. So, again, I just go where I think God needs me to serve. Uh, I try to work hard and, and, and fill that role that where I'm needed. So it, it worked out, Lisa, as you know, about four and a half years ago, I became a deputy city manager slash chief of police. About two and a half years ago, I came to City Hall full time retiring in police work after 36 years. Uh, I came over here as the COO, and then for the last six months, I've been city manager. So it's been a wonderful transition. It's It's been great. It really falls in line with another thing that I believe in, which is lifelong learning. I've learned and I'm learning a lot of new things, so that's been very exhilarating. Uh, I left the police department in great hands with the great chief of police who will make us even better. And now I get to serve in a broader scale in, in a different role. Uh, been, been very satisfying. So, yeah, it's, it's been a great journey so far. That's so people awesome. in our audience that are depressed because they're not an overnight success, should they should take heart in your story. That's right. You know, Randy, I'm glad you brought that up because you know what? I'm just as proud and I felt just as successful being a police officer for 20 years. I think people get too caught up in title. I think I was able to lead just as effectively as a police officer in different ways as I am now. So, you know, it's a team sport. Everybody's got a different position on the team. Never let your salary or your title impress yourself, much less others. Right. You should be respected and, and be uh, revered based on how you treat people and how you try to make things better for those that you serve. But, you know, to me, the notion of a police officer somehow not being as influential as a city manager or an HR specialist, not having the same opportunities to, to uh, you know, affect people positively as the director. I just don't espouse to that theory. I think everybody's role is very important. And if we help them maximize those roles, that's what gets success that oftentimes is credited to the leader or the leaders, which to me, the credit goes back to the team because 
the leaders should help everybody understand our purpose, our why, our vision, right? That's our job. Our number one job is also to have a good morale in your workforce because morale equals productivity. But the credit goes back to the team because if the team isn't pulling together and doesn't believe in the why or the purpose, then the goals are not going to be accomplished. Yeah. And if you haven't communicated them, we've talked so much about culture. It has to be felt. And when it's felt, you know, it's, it's being lived, right? If you cannot feel it from the lowest level to the highest level, and I love our raving fans philosophy because our community feels it. Our businesses give raving fans recognition. So this is something that passes on beyond us, but into our community we serve. And, and speaking of that, you know, it's, you've heard the old phrase, and I want you to speak to this, Steve, because I, I believe you've seen it as well. You know, you often hear as the topic today is developing our future leaders. You hear about, well, it's good enough for government work. And you and I, and I'm, you know, we don't believe that. So I want, I know you have a strong opinion on that. And I want you to share that with our listeners because it's, we need to be better than government work and that old adage. Yeah, Lisa, you, you know me well. So you've heard <laughs> me say it many times. I've never understood and will never understand why government really in my mind gets a free pass. People have just come to expect that when you deal with a governmental entity, it's going to take a long time. It's not going to be very efficient. You know, you're not going to get a lot of, of, of communication uh, back to you. And it's the DPS you know, experience, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, exactly. The driver's and, license. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, perfect example. You know, if you operate like that in the private sector, you know what you're called, right? You're called out of business. So, yeah. hey, you know what? Th- th- there's no free pass, in my opinion, on governmental services. As a matter of fact, we should be the most responsive entities out there because those that we serve are, are our citizens and what we're trying to help them accomplish. Bottom line, bottom line, what we should be focusing on is quality of life for our citizens. So, you know, one of the things I'm, I take a lot of pride in at the local governmental level, and I think a lot of cities are like this, but if they try to contact somebody at a higher level of government, it's really hard for them to talk to a person. You know, when you call the city of Grand Prairie, I want you to know that you're not going to get a voicemail. You'll get a live person who, whether or not that's their quote unquote job, they're going to find an answer for you. We should look at ourselves as public servants, as problem solvers focused on quality of life. And the best way to do that is put ourselves in the in the shoes or the position of those we serve. If that's me and I'm having that issue, what would I want? You know, if, if there's an issue with electrical service, that's not a city function. But you know what? We're going to liaison. We're going to advocate for that citizen with the electric provider because we want to be highly responsive. You know, great organizations are never moving laterally. They're either on the in, incline or the decline. So to prevent that stagnation, we have to make sure that we don't just process the work. But in between those times of processing the work, how are we trying to identify ways to get better, challenging ourselves and challenging those around us and those that we serve internally? How do we innovate? How do we create? How do we get better? Yes, that takes a lot of extra effort. But if you have the right workforce that's highly motivated with a good work environment and you commend those good acts, well, you're going to inspire them 
because that's where the satisfaction for me has come in public service is not just processing the work, but when I've been able to do something extra to really help somebody in their day. And I think the way that, that I've tried to look at it is, again, putting myself in their place, but also trying to be good at problem solving. You know, as a police officer, Randy and Lisa, I wanted to be good at everything from fixing a flat tire to catching a murder suspect because that flat tire for that citizen is just as important to them as the more serious issue later on in my day. So, you know, that's just the way I've always felt. And I, I think, you know, Lisa, as you've heard me say, um, we need to be highly responsive, high levels of customer service. And after we address the issue, we're really not done. Ma'am, sir, how else can I help you? You know, what can we do beyond just the immediate need? That shows that we care, but that also leads to a conversation on ways that we didn't even know that we could help them. Yeah, and I think that's that's so valuable because we do kind of lose sight. We've, We've talked about how so it's so easy to become the tactician, the technical expert, just do the job and forget about the influence that you can have, not only on the people around you, but we've talked about serving out, up and down. I can serve you if there's something that you need that you don't have expertise in. You can serve me and my, you know, what I'm trying to achieve in life and in career, et cetera. So at, that's a great segue as we kind of go into um, how you chose to help as a police officer. And you referenced that you had influence as an informal leader. Let's talk a little bit first about informal leaders and what that means to you. And then I want to shift us to talk about now, what do you look for when you are chief in influencing future leaders? What was important that they see in us? And let's kind of talk down because I know you gave us some great points on, you know, embedding mechanisms and some other things that we'll talk about. But let's talk about informal leadership first. And so people know what we look for as leaders and, uh, and what you can do in a role that doesn't have the title. Yeah, Lisa, I think in many ways, in, in, in many, if not most organizations, informal leadership is actually more influential than formal leadership. And, and you know, I think many informal leaders don't really even realize that they're informally leading. So, you know, what you see is obviously uh, a high level of accountability. You know, these folks, they're always at work on time. They don't bring in a lot of drama. They're very productive. You know, in the ebbs and flows of the work environment, both positive and negative, they continue to perform. You know, I've been in, in departments where I wasn't making very much money at all. I've been in departments where maybe the top leadership was not uh, as we would, would want. But, you know, those, those informal leaders, they're concerned with those issues, but they don't solely focus on that to dictate how they serve, right? So they, they're very consistent high performers. They take a lot of joy and satisfaction in coming to work every day. They they really see uh, in in their lives, they see a lot of satisfaction and purpose in what they do. And then where that kind of translates to where the formal leaders see that is, they're the ones that are always volunteering on on the committees. Those are the ones that are always coming up with ideas to improve their work environment. You know, I remember when I first got to GPPD, Lisa, there was a particular employee that had probably kind of been labeled as a complainer. But as I got to to looking into this, I realized, no, this is a person that cares. See, a complainer complains. 
somebody who cares about the organization, maybe when it's on a little bit of a down cycle, they, they may be complaining about a situation, but they're also stepping up to help be a part of the solution. So, you know, those informal leaders just, uh, they're, they're highly respected by their peers because they, they, you know, they really demonstrate the desired behavior of professionalism, you know, in policing, for example, they look good in their uniform, they're highly productive, they consistently have a positive attitude, they volunteer for extracurricular duties, and again, they look for solutions to improve, you know, whatever that job description is that they have. So some of the things that I think you see there, matter of fact, interestingly enough, one of the reasons I finally took a promotional exam after 20 years, I had never been a field training officer. And I started to see that that was actually selfish. While I was a very productive informal leader, I had never stepped down long enough to, to really formally train because it is very time consuming. So because I felt like I was being selfish by not having done that, then I felt like the way I could now give back to the profession that I loved so much was to actually promote to formal leadership. Did somebody influence you to make that decision, Steve? Randy, uh, two things happened. My wife uh, definitely uh, influenced me. And I was actually walking down a hall one day. I passed two brand new supervisors, good friends of mine, much less tenured policing. And I really had an epiphany. I really did. I remember like it was yesterday. I remember the two supervisors. I remember where I was and the epiphany, you know, and in my values, uh, you know, it was a Christian epiphany that, that God spoke to me and said, Steve, it's time. So wasn't uh, wasn't it was very powerful, Randy, and it wasn't any well thought out thought process. Uh, that was really clearly it with the urging of my wife. And then how did, you know, how did you transition? So you were an informal leader, you move up, you eventually become chiefs, different places. Uh, I think you double, double or triple promoted. I can't recall at Garland, but it was several levels up. You landed here and now you're chief of police here. Let's talk about a little bit about succession planning because the topic is, you know, influencing our future leaders. We've talked about what you're looking for in them. These are the people that have stepped up routinely. They're also influencing others without a title. So there's inherent trust, respect. We call it psychological safety. We've talked about before where there's no judgment. They're they're trying to make people around them better because of them. So now how do you, in your role there or here, um, share a story with you know, influence you can have as a leader in that, Steve, and, and influence others to now step up like you did. What what do you do? What do you look for? And then we'll talk about the mechanisms also that are key in that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this. Every time I've been promoted, I have invited and had present everybody who gave me an opportunity. My first chief of police in Garland, Mitch Bates, believed in my leadership abilities I didn't know the X's and O's. I didn't have the technical expertise. He said, Steve, that's the easy part. I can teach you how to be an assistant chief. I can't teach leadership and you bring it. And this is what I need for this organization. The first city manager, Jennifer Fadden, who gave me my first opportunity to be a chief of police. You know, the city manager, uh, Tom Hart, that hired me to be my first big city chief, right? So I think you always have to remember those that gave you these opportunities and, and, pay that forward. So the first week as the chief of police here in 2011, 
I was going over my priorities uh, with my city manager. And one of my top priorities was succession planning. And I remember Tom started laughing. He goes, Steve, you just got here. Why are you already (laughs) talking about succession planning? And I said, Tom, I said, to me, succession planning starts on day one. If you really put your organization ahead of your personal needs and, and, you know, let's not think about how much money I can make and what title I can achieve. Mm-hmm. If you really care about what you do as a servant, then you're going to put the organization first. And day one, you need to start looking for your replacement. And I told Tom, I said, Tom, in a civil service policing environment, it may take me years to develop the next chief. And Lisa, I was right. It took me eight and a half years to get Chief Sesney ready. So I think day one, you need to start looking. I also believe that good leadership and good leaders are not threatened by people that are more talented or as talented as they are that are below them in the organization. Uh, To me, uh, I I think that's very sad when leaders don't try to surround themselves with people that either have different ideas, better ideas, or talent to be able to take their position. So again, put the organization first. Don't be threatened by talent and then invest. You've got to really take time to invest. So quick example, when I was wanting to be a police officer and I'm in college, very few departments offered ride outs. Nobody would really talk to you. It was a very closed environment. And I made a promise to myself that if I ever became a police officer, that I was going to always make time to give back for those interested in the profession. So fast forward, it's the same with succession planning. We need to help identify those that have the potential and then invest in them, taking time out of our day to not only share with them our experiences and our knowledge. We don't know it all, but a lot of times we've just been through more experiences. Share that because their goals should be our goals. So, you know, one of the things I'm most proud about as chief is I sent six or seven GPPD members out to be chiefs at other departments. I mean, there's only one chief uh, at the Grand Prairie Police Department. So not everybody who was interested in becoming a chief could be the chief at GPPD. So, hey, let's help the profession. You know, in, in government, let's not just think about our city. Let's think about how do we develop people to go out in other cities and help the profession as a whole. Again, not being territorial or just wanting our city to be the best. We should want the entire municipal government profession to be the best. So I think we have to invest in them. And what that means is identification of those informal leaders. What I did with Chief Sesney, just a quick funny story. So I identified Chief Sesney pretty early on. He was an undercover narcotics detective. I said, hey, Daniel, have you ever thought about being a sergeant? Because I wanted to at least get him in that first level of formal leadership. Oh, chief, I love what I'm doing. And and whenever I quit doing this, I want to be a homicide detective. (laughs) A couple of years later, he's a homicide detective. Hey, Daniel, how are you doing? Good, chief. Hey, have you ever thought about taking that sergeant's test? Chief, I love being a homicide detective. Okay, all right. You know, I kind of internally rolled my eyes. I I walked (laughs) off. A year later, you know, hey, Daniel, you thought about that sergeant's test? No, chief, I love solving murders. And I looked at him. I said, Daniel, take the sergeant's test. So, you know, <laughs> you I, used I, your I, authority. That's the difference I, between influence and authority. At go. that point, you're pulling the card. You're taking the test. <laughs> you know, as Tom Hart used to tell us, what good is power if you don't use it? Right. So, <laughs> you know, I had to I had to show him what he didn't know. 
That's and, right. And so I did. I got him to take that sergeant's test. And then not long after that, I triple promoted him to assistant chief. But because he was so highly respected in the organization, I didn't get uh, very much pushback on that triple promotion. But, you know, I, I just saw what I knew it took to be a chief in him. And there were others. I'm not going to say he, he was the only one. But as the process is vetted out, he ended up being the choice. So, but again, that took a lot of time, but, but also exposure, you know, take time to look at the people that, you know, have that aspiration, but have that ability and that talent and that skill set. Like we're doing with you, Lisa, we mm-hmm. need to give you opportunities outside of HR to learn more about the budget, to lead special projects that aren't necessarily HR centric, right. to give you that exposure that you haven't had. Um, I had to learn a lot of mine trial by fire. Quite frankly, um, a lot of it, I was given some opportunities, but one of the things that I don't know that I got enough of that I want to give others is time with the people above me to not just talk about the work at hand, but development and opportunities to work in areas that weren't in my comfort zone or right. weren't really in my, my, my base of knowledge. So that's, that's very, again, if, if you truly love your organization then you've got to put the organization first, which means you constantly need need to be talking and thinking and working and acting on developing those future leaders in in all areas. And to, you know, Lisa, we talk about it a lot here. I expect every level of formal formal supervision to be actively working on succession planning. Right. We owe it to our our citizens. That's right. And And like you said, it takes years. This cannot be something you do last second because, uh, it, you need to, you just don't know what life holds for each of us, right? So we need to be grooming and training. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily promising, but you're putting them in a position and a place where they can compete well. Um, and like you said, that if we can't retain them here, we want to, I always call it, you know, grow them and send them. If we, if we don't have that one spot that they're looking for, we are growing and sending them. But let's and now those, talk. Time out. Those are great. Quick, his, his his illustrations are great illustrations, and then I'll I'll shut up, Steve. Your your illustrations with Daniel and your illustrations with Lisa are congruent. The whole theme of our podcast is about developing leadership, and our view of leadership is its influence, it's a focus on others, and it's doing for others what they can't do for themselves. So you go to Daniel and you say, "Take the sergeant's test." Okay, so you do for him what he couldn't or wouldn't do for himself. And as you're trying to expose Lisa, the same thing. I mean, it's the it's it's the great benefit of any level of leadership. It's especially rewarding, I know, as what I call a number one. You know, you don't have a sign on your desk back there, but if you did, it would read the buck stops here because it does, right? And so there's tremendous responsibility with that as you're able as you're able to do for other people what maybe nobody else can do. Mm-hmm. because of, of where you've ascended to. What were you going to say, Steve? Well, no, Randy, I think those are great points. And and, and I, I tell you, uh, it's kind of like, Lisa, you've heard me say this. One of the most important things of leadership, in my opinion, is communication, communication, communication. Mm-hmm. But the reason I think a lot of leadership falls short is that is very time-consuming. Uh, but I think it's one of the most important things that good leaders do because that way everybody understands what's going on, the purpose, the why, the expectations and all that. But again, very time consuming. So I, I think, you know, when we, 
same philosophy applies with succession planning. It's very time consuming, but it's so very important. You've got to take time. You know, I always tell our leaders here, Randy, I want you to take an hour a week, put it on your calendar, block it off to just sit and think because we're all really, really busy. I want your door shut for an hour a week to just think about what is going on in my area of responsibility. What's good? What's bad? How can we get better? Who are the up and comers? How are we developing those leaders? And then I think another big part of this, and this is a tough one too, like communication takes a lot of time. We've got to be able to have the tough conversations with those that we believe in. Um, I'm getting ready to have one of those conversations with somebody that has a tremendous amount of talent, but it's kind of like being a parent. You know, you don't always like your kids, but you darn sure better always love them. Well, because we love our kids, we have the courage to communicate when they're when they're not doing what they're capable of doing. So I think another big part of succession planning is not just development, but also, hey, you, you got the potential to, to be better here. And because I love you and I want you to be uh, successful in service and in this organization, man, I need you to work on this. Right. So I think that's a big, big part uh, of, of succession planning is having those candid conversations. And if you built a relationship of trust, they will take that in the right way. They will know that you're doing that because you care about them. And let's, let's talk about that because that leads us to your, uh, you call it embedding mechanisms. And that's one of the topics. There's embedding mechanisms and reinforcing mechanisms. And we'll have this up. Uh, Randy will have it posted so that you all can follow this and see it communication uh, was actually on the reinforcing, but you talk about <clears throat> embedding mechanisms. Let's talk for a second. There's basically uh, five of them. Role modeling that you've said is critical, attention, measurement, and control, <clears throat> rewards and correction, crisis reaction, and then recruitment selection and retention like you did with Daniel. And for those of you that will see the slide deck, it's got a dog on here. And you're probably saying, well, he grew up on a farm and he knows horses. Why a dog? And you know what my response is, Randy and Steve? Why not a dog? Everybody loves dogs. But <laughs> the real point is, <clears throat> you know, leadership can simply be translated to training. I've got a puppy at the house, brand new puppy. Well, puppies don't come well-trained and making influence. They, they, they come without knowledge. They come without power. They, they can make they, other things, though. They can reach. <laughs> havoc, right? As, as could, as could a poor leader or poor attitude or anything else. But it takes, it takes patience. It takes role modeling of what we expect for them to do. It takes rewards at the right time and correction when needed. But like you said, with love, with their best interest at heart to serve you well. And then they are, once you train them, if you train them with diligence and patience and love, most loyal animals to almost to a fault. They love you infinitely, right? And are loyal. So that's really genuinely why I have a dog on the slide deck. But let's talk about role modeling. And I'm going to walk us through each one. But I want, Steve, these are your thoughts. So I want you to provide examples as we go into that. Um, tell us now about I like role the modeling. word. I like the word because Steve put the word here, deliberate. 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 Deliberate role modeling, which I think the deliberate part does get past, especially informal leaders. 
That's right. So tell us about why that's important, Steve, and these these five topics for embedding. And why don't you tell them what embedding mechanisms means to you? Well, it just means a continuous flow, example, demonstration, deliberately done to make sure that it becomes a part of your leadership culture, both you individually and that is uh, replicated by other leaders in the organization. You know, it, embedding means it's got to be done consistently, uh, voluminously over time. And it, it, there's really no, there's no time to rest. So, you know, leadership is the most exhausting thing that anybody can ever do because there's never a finish line, but it's also conversely the most rewarding thing that we can ever do. So, you know, deliberate role modeling, modeling is the first one up there. And, and that means that you set the example. It starts and ends with you. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. And there's many examples. These are simple examples that everybody can follow. Nobody knows when the formal leaders are working here till six, seven o'clock at night. They don't see that because most of them are going to go home at the end of their day, which, you know, unless you're on a shift work, it's going to be 5 p.m. But everybody sees what time you come in in the morning. They may not know that you work till 10 o'clock at night. All they see is they, they know where your parking space is because generally it's pretty visible and they're coming in at eight o'clock and they know whether or not your car's there. So you know what? It, it, it doesn't matter how late you stay at night or, you know, what you did the night before. It doesn't matter how many hours you're working that week. They're going to see what time you come in. These are the little things that employees notice. Why? Because I was that 20-year line level person. So it's the little things. Okay, you're getting out of your car and you're walking in the building. They may not know that you've already worked 60 hours this week. You've got 15 different issues you're trying to tackle. Uh, you've got a lot on your mind and you come across an employee. Well, I may be tired. I may be in a bad mood, but I may not see this employee again for six months. If I'm expecting that employee to be cheerful, helpful, problem solver, either on the phone or in person with the citizen, if they see me grumpy, tired, and I don't acknowledge them, then guess what? They're going to think it's okay to treat the citizen that way. So, you know, you got to suck it up, buttercup, as a leader. <laughs> you may be tired. You may be frustrated. It doesn't matter. When you interact with your employees, you need to set the example. You're in a good mood. You're positive. You're asking about them, their families. How are they doing? You care about them. You want to know what's going on in their lives. You need to show that you're invested in them and you need to treat them exactly like you want them to treat those that they serve. So that's very easily said, harder to do. You've always got to be on your game. But remember, you signed up to be a formal leader. Nobody made you do it. You signed up for it. And guess what? The higher you get in the organization, the more money you make, the more responsibility you have. So if you can't bear that weight of, of formal leadership, then get out of the game because your people deserve the very best and your citizens deserve the very best. So again, a couple of small examples. You've always got to be on. Now, sometimes when you go to have lunch, you not, might need to go by yourself. You might need to, you know, we're human beings, right? So we need to decompress. Yeah. We need to be making sure that we're on some type of wellness program, right. both with diet and exercise. We need to make sure we're trying to get enough sleep. We've got to take care of ourselves, spend enough time with family and friends mm -hmm. so you can create that, that, create that whole work-life balance. 
so that when you are around your employees, you are on your game. Perfect. And listen so. to your wife of 32 yeah. years. Yeah. Amen, brother. That's uh, a <laughs> happy well, wife. Well happy life. <laughs> well, I'm just a few, I'm just a few years ahead. Being of Being the too. girl in the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Being you know, the Randy, wife who says right. the husband needs to listen to me more. Yeah. Hey, hey, Randy, it took me my first 15 years of marriage to figure that out. And man, if I'd have just known then, I could have saved myself a lot of grief. Yes, yeah. honey, of course, dear. You're right, because they usually are right, Randy. You know that. Oh, I know that. Listen, I've got one for 44 years. We've been together since we were 18, and I, I can tell you, like you, I ascribe, I will ascribe all of my failures to myself, but I will absolutely ascribe my success largely to her. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, attention, measurement, and control. Uh, and basically, on the slide, you talk about Steve. People do what gets attention. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, as leaders, we we send the messages both directly and indirectly of what is important. We commend the desired behavior, right? And that's a way to do that, right? When we were going through the cultural transformation at the police department, some behaviors that had been commended weren't really the direction that I wanted us to go, like how many tickets we can write in a day. You know, that wasn't really the direction I wanted to go with overall enforcement and community policing and that type of thing. So I started minimizing the attention on those uh, outcomes that were important, but weren't the most important priorities for the organization. Um, so, yes, they're going to deliver what gets reinforced and, and gets attention. And it's not just through commendations. It is through how, what we talk about in our staff meetings. What are our priorities? Obviously, our priorities are based off of what our mayor and city council delivered to us as citizen representatives. But internally, how do we, you know, accomplish those goals with the internal priorities? So yes, we what gets attention gets done. What gets, you know, focused on gets done because the employees, most employees, are good people, and they want to please uh, their supervision and and they want to feel good about what they're doing. So. We have to very consciously understand as, as a team. So we start our we start our goals based on our mission statement, our values, and, and, and you know, then we strategically, tactically have to really break that down into understandable tactical components for our employees. So we mission statement sounds great, but how do we strategically get there? And then you have to start breaking that down. And then that's when you list over and over again. So over and over again, I talk about tangible outcomes. Hey, you know, I want us to be engaged with communities. So we increase our volunteerism, uh, you know, from five volunteers to 200 volunteers. You know, hey, I want us to lower the crime rate by X percentage. And we're going to do that based on this reliance on technology, evidence-based policing, you know, uh, activities. Like you, you really have to get granular. And then you have to over and over again, you know, give that attention and that commendation, that reinforcement, while you don't necessarily have to negatively address the other aspects of the measurement piece that that still need to be done, but maybe not be important. You know, we still want to write citations at some point in time, right? But we just don't want to necessarily talk about it a lot or focus on it a lot. So I think there's a very strategic way that you you you, you give attention. Uh, to these measurements. We all have them. We all have measurements. 
Lisa, one of the things that we did as a perfect example, we implemented annual goals in every work group because when you reduce the annual goals to a work group, it's no longer a strategic plan. It's measurements within that work group that they can get excited about as a, as a goal setting. Hey, we want to do this this year. And then you're talking about that regularly every quarter. Hey, how are we tracking on our goals? Where are we at? You know, you excite people about a competition to achieve this. But see, we, we broke it down into those smaller areas. So it's no longer a strategic plan. It's a tangible plan on actually things that we can uh, get measured or measure that we want to excite ourselves and, and, and get uh, really uh, on board with, with accomplishing. And I think it's so important as you talk about that. You know, we talk a lot about our community and and we have a lot of people listening that are internal service departments that you have uh, currently under Cheryl in our in our world, right? We've got HR, finance, um, audit services that we're really doing things for our internal. And I think it's important for you all as listeners to understand every action we have still impacts our community. So in HR, the way I translate that for you, you all listening going, well, I don't do community. Well, you do. I want to tell you, you do. Because in HR, our job is to get police the people that they need and pay them well. And our job is to get fire the police, the paramedics they need to serve our community. If we aren't internally doing our job well, if budget isn't managing our dollars and making sure we have enough to spread the wealth and strategically partnering with Steve and our CMO team on, hey, we're running short here. Do we need to look at something for the year? Do we need to cut back on something? I mean, everything has a purpose. But if you're sitting in your silo and as a leader, we're talking about these, you know, leadership, whether informal or formal, you have to bring information up and educate um, again, serving up where we can help you, Steve, accomplish what you're trying to accomplish for our community through through investment, through education, through knowledge. And so you all uh, just be sure you know everything impacts our community and our city and our government and our leadership. Um, again, up, out, and down. You do not have to have the title. If you see something, um, you can be part of the mission and the goal and the impact and the uh, ultimate outcome that the entire city from the top to the lowest level. Lisa, I think you make a great point that a lot of our public servants have internal customers. So one of the things that we always want to talk about is if our servants that are directly contacting the citizens are not supported and facilitated by those departments that serve them as our internal partners, we can't do what we do externally without the support and, and, and the, the guidance uh, and the facilitation of our internal partners. So that is so important that just because you may not be public facing in your service uh, to, to a city or a governmental entity doesn't mean that you don't have just as great of an impact. You know, one of the things that, that I, one of the analogies I, I would give you um, is, and I'll just use the police department because that's where most of my experience has been. You know, the patrol officers are the hub of the wheel. You know, administration, detention, communications, detectives, all the other support services, those are the spokes of the wheel. So while patrol in, in policing is the hub of the wheel, the wheel never turns without all the spokes in place. So that's why everybody 
you know, in public safety, both in a firefighter, police officer, support capacity is equally important because while we understand the hub, the, the, the wheel has to work together. And then, you know, Lisa, I think one of the things that, that we focused on to try to help that is our friendship day. So Randy, what we did is, you know, I said, hey, a lot of our employees never see the people that we actually serve being our citizens. Some of our employees, a lot of our employees don't even live in our city. So they're in a controlled environment every day. And what is the outcome of their hard work? So we created a friendship day where every month uh, you get four hours paid to go out into the community, volunteer for a civic group, 501c3 charitable organization of your choosing, or go out and ride along with the police officer or go tour the facility that you just helped uh, find resources to build, right? Get out into the community and see those that you're serving and, and what you're doing to help with their quality of life. And I think what we're seeing there, Randy, is a, a greater connection, a greater feeling of purpose for those that maybe serve internal customers or those that that don't have direct access to the public. So that's been very beneficial for us. And it's been very inclusive, not just to helping our employees, but also our citizens seeing, hey, I've got, you know, city attorneys out here helping load uh, garbage out of a vacant lot. I mean, it, it's very powerful for the communities to see that it's not just police and fire and code out there and public works. There's a lot more that the organization has to, to our genetic makeup and a lot of other employees that truly care about their community. And we, and I know uh, we talk, as you're talking about uh, leaders, I know that that's important to Steve and important to our city manager's office. And, and we do that internally. This is again, how you can take as a leader, what, what is being, uh, I call it professed at the top. I mean, what, what you all believe in at the top. So I take my team out for our monthly HR strategic meetings and I take them to different facilities that they hired people to live, you know, to work in. And so we can visit those facilities and they like to Steve's point, they can see what they impacted Um, because otherwise we're behind a desk here, hiring people, retaining people, doing programming, et cetera, and they don't see it. So again, as leaders and those listening, you know, those are additional ways you can not only influence, but impact leadership and follow uh, the mission at the top and influence that. Um, So we talked a little bit about reward and correction. Uh, You know, one of the points on here is crisis reaction, Steve, talk a little bit about that. Uh, because I think that does speak volumes to your character as a leader and how you handle that, again, going along with role modeling. Thanks, Lisa. And uh, I wrote a couple of notes down. I want to hit on a couple of quick things, and then I want to get to crisis reaction. First of all, as leaders, you know, we always need to be, we talked about, you know, setting the example at the very beginning of this slide. You know, you always need to be willing to put up tables and chairs, if, if you're too good to do it, then why are you asking your people to do it? So always be willing to put up tables and chairs. I think when we talk about rewards and punishments, we've, we've covered the reward part, as you said, but I think when we talk about punishment, I like to talk about discipline in a positive connotation. And the listeners are going, well, what the heck are you talking about? Well, <laughs> here's what I'm talking about. 95% of the discipline that we administer is going to be to good employees who just made a mistake you know, less than 5% is going to be termination. 
So you have an opportunity with discipline. You have an opportunity because 95% or so are going to walk out that door and they're still going to be working for you. So do you want to be a negative experience or positive experience? I, you know, I believe in bringing them in, helping them understand how they fell short, but don't make it personal. You fell short in accordance to our expectations based on our organization's values. You know, kind of like your kids again, right? You want your kids to be disappointed that they let you down, not mad at you. The best way to create correct behavior with, with the child is to, to help them feel that they let you down. So, you know, help the employees understand that, that they let you down. Uh, help them understand that, you know, because we're an ethical organization, we're going to hold you accountable. But then build them back up. Let them know, because if you're not going to fire them, they're still going to be working for you. You got to let them know that you haven't lost faith in them, that you still believe in them. Because if you've lost faith in them and you still believe in them, then why are they still employed? So if you're still going to employ them, help, help build them back up. Hey, you made a mistake, but we're not going to let it define you. When you walk out of this room, we're not going to discuss it as your chain of command. You can if you want, but we're not going to discuss it. And you know what? We still, we still have confidence in you. Don't let it define you. We're not going to hold it against you. And then, you know, one little trick I would use as the final decision maker, when, when I was done having that conversation, I would intentionally leave the, the room, but leave those below me organizationally in the organization structure in the room to have a more of a pep talk without the big boss in there. That, hey, man, you know, the city, the city manager still believes in you. That's why you're still here. You know, hey, you, we, we're going to help you. We're going we're gonna to get you some training to help you better understand this, or we're going to mentor you a little bit more closely. So I think discipline is very important that we emphasize the desired behavior uh, that we're concerned with from a commending good acts, but we also can do that reinforcement through discipline, which you want them to walk out of a disciplinary meeting, shaking your hand and apologizing to you for letting you down. That's not always going to happen. And if you don't see that reaction, then maybe that employee is not a long-term solution for you. Maybe they just are never going to believe in it. And if that's the case, they will they will rear their ugly head again. Crisis reaction, Lisa, I think this one is critically important. When you are in a crisis, and it doesn't just have to be a, a visible crisis. For example, you know, particularly when I was the police chief, there's a lot of very visible things that are crisis, quote unquote. How you handle those in terms of holding your people accountable while still, you know, espousing and believing in them and, and, and helping the world to understand that, that if they didn't do anything wrong, then, then you stand behind them and here's why. If you're not willing to get fired for two or three things, don't be the boss. Now, I'm not telling you to pick a fight, but if you don't believe in two or three things enough to lose your job over it, you will sacrifice your values and you will not you will not re react properly in a crisis. And I'll give you a couple of examples. There was a bar where we had a young lady that was shot in the leg who was getting ready to go off to college on a track scholarship. She lost that scholarship because she got caught, shot in the leg. I was willing to get fired had the city not supported me in closing down that bar. And I made that known to my city manager. The city supported me. We had a... Uh, 
minority female police officer use force on a minority male citizen. It was trying to be become controversial. Uh, I reacted to that crisis by affirming that the officer made the proper decision. And I turned the conversation into a discussion of self-responsibility for the actions of the citizen who used force and evaded my police officer. Uh, and then there's also other times when we've been in a crisis mode, you have, to, you have to be the voice and the picture of calm in the storm. You may be a, in, in, in turbulence and turmoil uh, internally, but you've got to uh, convey strength. You know, when city manager or city managers, mayors, council members are looking to hire leaders in formal positions at a high level, one of the first things we're looking at is how is that person going to perform behind the podium in a crisis? So you've got to be the voice of reason, the voice of calm, the picture of confidence, while also being uh, humble enough to admit mistakes. You know, admit what was done wrong, either by you or the organization, help everyone understand what was done right, support the right things for the right reasons, and show everybody that they can have faith in your strength when, when a crisis occurs and your actions are going to speak volumes in reinforcing the desired behavior, reinforcing the values, and again, making sure that you're the advocate for that employee who may be caught in the middle of this crisis. And typically what we see is the employee did a lot of things right, and they may have done some things wrong, but we can't just expend them and dispose of them for the sake of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that we stand behind that employee's good acts while holding them accountable for what may, we may have fallen short in. I think those are great. And, and you know, we, we've talked now um, and you gave great examples that are easy to follow and understand for our listeners of the, the character things, the actions we have to take as leaders. Uh, now let's talk about the what you call reinforcing mechanisms and just kind of share with our listeners, because that's a little bit different uh, approach. It's, it's not so much in, in you and how you're built and how you react, but it's more on, you know, the, the background items. So talk about those a little bit and share with the listeners. Yeah. So kind of unlike the embedding and again, you know, kind of the, the thing we didn't really get to on embedding is you've got to maintain a standard of recruitment and hiring that is going to be consistent with the focus and mission and values of your organization while also focusing on recruiting and, and retention of those that will have the potential to make your organization better. I think in recruitment, we sometimes just think of filling the the available opening with somebody who meets our culture and our, our expectations, but also try to look into that uh, to, to find someone who has the potential to make us better. So as we kind of transition into reinforcing mechanisms, that's going to be more of your organizational structures. Now we're kind of, we're kind of moving out of the individual leadership traits and characteristics and more in how we build our organization from a logistical standpoint, a hierarchy standpoint, a system standpoint. So Lisa, you've seen this, you know, um, sometimes this can be a transition over time. So 11 years ago, when I got to the PD, I knew 
had a pretty good idea where I wanted to go ultimately, but I couldn't reorganize the organizational structure that radically overnight. If I would have reorganized the org chart the way I knew it was going to be in, you know, 2020, I would have freaked everybody out. You know, you have to, you have to challenge your people without frustrating them. And you, you've got to be smart enough to, to particularly in transformation situation to, to really kind of strategically phase this in over time to where it becomes part of your culture over time, not a big radical change from some new leader that doesn't know anything about what we do, right? So, you know, as you learn the organization, you build credibility and trust internally, then you can phase that in. So your organizational chart needs to be moving towards what are those priorities? For example, our organizational chart as a city now includes a culture, uh, a cultural diversity and inclusion position that really works on internally and externally how do we increase and improve our engagement in terms of inclusion and diversity? That's on the org chart, and, and that position is, is an assistant to the city manager. So it shows the entire organization and the citizens this is really important because it's now on the org chart and it's part of the city manager's office. That's one really good example of showing that inclusion and diversity was very important to our leadership team. Uh, so that's, that's one example. You know, where you, where you house your people is, is important. And I want to talk about two things logistically with office space and, and how we put people where we put them. In policing, it's not really that big a deal where your desk is. But in most other areas of the organization, people take note how big the office is. They take note where is it located. You know, I had to learn this, Randy. Okay. I was a street cop for 20 years. I my, my office was out in a patrol car and on the streets, right? But I had to learn this, that, hey, that's very important. So Steve's in a corner office, by the way, for those of you that are not watching. Oh. And, the, and the view is pretty The view is pretty good. So okay, you, Randy, you, had, you just had to go there, didn't you? you <laughs> I did. I did. I'm sorry. Hey, one quick funny story. When I was brand new chief at the police department, you know, me and all my assistant deputy chiefs all parked up front. So I come in, I said, hey, you know what? let's send a message to the organization that we're not any better than anybody else here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move all of our parking spots to the back of the parking lot. Well, they looked at me and started laughing because they just assumed I was joking and I was not joking, but this is an important lesson for me. That was too radical of a change because what that would have done is I would have showed my executive team that they weren't that important to me. That was the wrong decision, and I ended up not doing it. I really focused on more of what time they saw our Tahoes in those parking spots <laughs> right. versus where the parking spots were located because I realized, you know what? I need to show them some love, too, and that was too much of a radical change too quickly. So, you know, where we put people in the offices or the, the places, that's important because it can show – not that we say any area of our organization is more important than another area, but it can show prominence either intentionally or unintentionally. But I think what I, to me, is more important about this kind of office space discussion, what have we always done with facilities and fleet and, you know, who always gets the nicest, newest buildings first, police and fire. And then a pretty close second is city hall, mm. right? 
Well, you know what? Why, why should fleet and facilities not get a nice building? So, so one of the things that I'm proud of here is we're giving them nice facilities and, and we're still working on the facilities, but we gave fleet a nice building. You know, I want them to have the same pride in their workspace that we have in ours. When the mechanics come in, I want them to have a nice toolbox with nice tools. When the fleet admin and the facilities admin go to their office, it shouldn't be a cubicle tucked in the back of a warehouse. So that is, that's reinforcing how you feel about the organization as a whole, that everybody on the team matters. You know, if, on the football, if we don't have the trainers and, and those giving us hydration, then we're not going to perform, right? So I think those are things that we need to really think about. You know, public safety tends to get a lot of attention, which they should. But remember, everybody else is a spoke in the wheel that makes the wheel turn. And I, I think, think that's, that's a really – go ahead, Lisa. I was going to say, I think that's also uh, important when we're talking about when you're talking about influencing your future leaders and it goes back to role modeling, you're modeling that you're listening, that you're making decisions based on that input um, and that you're thinking about every. And when they see you're doing that almost without recognizing, but I know yours is intentional, they are seeing those decisions and people start mirroring those. Like you said, it's transparent and it's contagious they start wanting to do those same things in their leadership. And it, your examples just go back to the value of role modeling um, as we talk about influencing and develop development of our leaders. It's also aspirational though. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big college football guy, Steve. And okay. I was born in Oklahoma. We're in Texas, okay. I get it, but I'm an OU, <laughs> I'm an OU sooner through and through. Uh. And if you I look should have betted him closer, Steve. Now, I'm sorry. Listen, <laughs> whether you look down in Austin or you look at Norman or you look in Tuscaloosa, yeah, you know, in any of these programs, the facilities. To your point, though, the facilities matter. It matters to these recruits coming in. It matters to the pride in these programs. You know, I mean, you you see it affect these young men. And all jokes aside, Steve, I mean, your office there is an aspirational component to it for those that because you don't know who in the organization one day is going to be in the position you're in not at grand prairie perhaps mm -hmm. but somewhere somewhere and so i think there's something to that right we we all need something to to aspire so i don't make any apologies i never made any apologies for a corner office i got and i don't think you 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 should either because there's been years and years of work you know, to, to achieve that. And I do think it serves a positive. I don't think it's just an ego builder. Yeah. Well, look, Randy, uh, aside from me, not holding it against you that you're an OU fan. <laughs> uh, look, look, the, the higher, the, the higher you get in the organization, the harder you should work. So you're absolutely right. Everybody in the corner office, darn sure better be earning it. I, I, I say that over and over again, the higher you get in the organization, the harder you should work. And we should all work hard, but I just think, you know, you signed up for it. So put your big boy or big girl pants on and get after it. Now, when they built us a new police station here, it is magnificent. And when I would talk to the officers and, and now I can talk to them about city hall, cause it's beautiful. I would tell them, this is not a building. This is a reflection of what your citizens think about you. So, so think about that for a minute. This is what your citizens think about you. So we should be equal in what we think about them through our service. This is a, this is a partnership. 
And if they thought enough of us to build us this beautiful building, let's think enough of them to give them service like they've never known. You know, I want I want people to tell me what they've told me. You know, I moved out of Grand Prairie and I moved back. I'll never move out of Grand Prairie because I love they I love those stories that were just different than a lot of other cities. Mm-hmm. They feel so welcomed. They feel so uh, grateful to have such a high level of service. You call 911 in our city, you get a police officer every day, all day long. Now, some cities may not be able to do that, but these are things that I love to hear. But it does come back a lot to they gave taxpayer dollars to give me this corner office. And, and, and when we do, we do tours of City Hall, I leave my door open. I lock what is what needs to be locked up. I leave my door open. This is not my office, Randy. This is the citizen's office. They funded it. I work for them. So anybody can come to my office uh, as long as you, you know, meet certain security parameters, right? <laughs> right. So, um, Lisa, I want to I wanna say, too, about, you know, we have on this slide, we, we talk, I talk a little bit about uh, centralization and decentralization. Do you mind if I hit on that real quick? No, of course. Sure. So here's what, here's where I'm going with that. When we centralize things, that's as it need be, right? But I think sometimes when we decentralize, we show a greater focus on that because we're getting a little bit more hands-on with it, right? So I could have easily put, I could have easily kept solid waste landfill recycling under public works. I could have easily put, you know, inclusion and diverse diversity under uh, a, an assistant city manager, a deputy city manager. When you decentralize that, you're, you're really, what you're trying to do is get more into the weeds of the service level. So what are one of the, what are one of the, the things that I hear most about? Garbage and recycling collection. Ability, you know, because we have a city landfill, ability to go to that landfill, that became to me very, very obvious that this is a very high priority for our citizens, and it was centralized. So, as you know, Lisa, I decentralized that. I created a director position because we were doing a fantastic job, but I wanted to put a high, even a higher emphasis on what I knew was a community priority. You know, when I first got here, we had a, we had a prostitution problem, a narcotics problem, a violent crime problem, a property crime problem. We had, if it was, there was a problem, we had it. Uh, Glad to say now we're one of the very safest cities in the country and our crime rate is down over 55% in the last decade. But when we got here, we had a lot of problems. You know what my number one complaint to the chief's office was back in 2011? None of those. It wasn't anything about crime. It was truck route violations. It was trucks getting lost in neighborhoods, getting out of the industrial district and driving through somebody's neighborhood. So I immediately recognized, hey, you know what? While I'm the expert in law enforcement and community policing, I need to listen to my community. This was not even on my radar. It immediately became a priority. Now, all those other priorities maintained as priorities, but we added that as a priority and we decentralized resources and added resources and time and attention to attack that priority, right? So we we have to be very strategic in thinking what gets gets the most resources usually gets the most attention that should get the, be- the best outcomes. Now, as leaders, we have to manage that and we have to watch over that. Anytime we allocate resources, I say this to my city council, 
as city manager, I said it to him as chief of police. I will never ask you for additional resources without at the very same time explaining to you what is your return on investment as a citizen. I first got here, I had a council member, a uh, great guy who's unfortunately passed away because of COVID. Steve, how many patrol officers do you need? Chief, you know, how many do you need? We'll get them for you. I said, Mr. Swafford, I do need quite a few. But as a citizen, you're not going to see a return on investment immediately for 20 more patrol officers. But if you'll give me five people for a problem-solving unit, you will start to see results immediately. And then over time, we'll build up that patrol number to see more long-term results. And that's exactly what we did. We, again, look at the private sector. If you go to the board, you need to be able to explain why you're spending money on a particular initiative uh, and how that's going to relate to return on investment. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to get the resources. So I think as servants, don't just say, well, we need 1.5 officers per thousand population. We may, but also, okay, with that increased number, what as a citizen will you see to help your quality of life? So again, I think we have to move. That, that's a moving target. Environments change. Homelessness and affordable housing are, are very prominent now in what we're hearing a lot about from our citizens. So how do we continually be dynamic enough and flexible enough to move as priorities shift with centralizing, centralizing resources structurally, budgetarily, and, and through the hierarchy? And... Um... As you talk, you know, I think one of the interesting things I just want you to speak quickly about as we're um, getting kind of to the end of this particular topic, um, but talk a little bit, about, you, and you mentioned stories earlier, you, but in here you've talked about your tales, legends, and parables, those stories. Why, why are those important to you? Well, because we all sit around and hear the older tenured employees talking about all these war stories, right? It doesn't matter what department you're in. Well, you know, they may be funny. They may be war stories, but, but be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Because as leaders, the war stories that we either talk about, tell, or allow to occur, mm -hmm. that's reinforcing your culture, whether you know it or not. You know, I've heard war stories and I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe that you guys were spending time on this or that's embarrassing to me or that's not professional. So what I would do is I would quickly interject my own war story that talked about, you know, as I said, when I retired from law enforcement, Lisa, it wasn't the big arrest that I remembered most. It was how I was able to help the three little Hispanic girls have presents for Christmas or how I was helped, you know, through my ability to speak Spanish, form a, a, a Spanish speaking community program that has been replicated. Those, those are the things I remember. So, those are the things I want to talk about. I want to talk about things that reinforce our value set, that reinforce our mission statement, that reinforce who we are and where we want to go. Because you have plenty of those war stories as well. So as leaders, you know, kind of, kind of diminish and, and discourage the war stories that talk about behavior that might have been reckless, inefficient, or not really on point with where we want to go as a highly professional organization and replace those with the war stories that reinforce that community engagement, you know, that quality of life, that extra step or that extra program initiative that we made to not just process the work, but to make things better 
you know, and then I think the other thing that kind of goes along with that, and Lisa, you'll, you know, you know, because we work so closely together, pretty regularly I bring up our mission statement. Mm-hmm. I bring up our vision. I bring up our values. The organizational's, the organization's vision should really be your, your guiding compass. If, there, if there's a decision point on what we should do as servants, the first thing we want to do is go back and look at our mission statement. That's our guiding principle. And then from there, look at strategically and tactically, what have we set, set up? You know, that's really how we want all this to flow back to uh, our, our culture that is based on those values and that mission statement, again, to ultimately deliver that level of service that we want to see for the quality of life uh, for our citizens. That's perfect. And and what a great segue. So, you know, we it's, it's so critical that we, you've talked about both informal leaders, formal leadership, and then with the recent examples you just gave, the impact you had as a police officer, you didn't have the title of supervisor, you, but you influenced change and you were able to continue that. And I'm sure that's a, that's a perfect example of, I'm sure that impacted people around you. They wanted to rise up as well and make a difference because they saw probably the joy that it brought to you and those things you were doing to impact community. And it also developed trust in them in just seeing you as a role model, even at that level, um, to come to you with their ideas or come to you with their challenges where you can, again, influence that um, you know, around you. So as we close out with some thoughts, um, tell them about some leadership thoughts. Let's wrap up with your thoughts on leadership uh, just generally. So it kind of gives them a to-do, you know, a to-do list um, with what's important as they go back and they finish. I always tell them, if you just listen and you do nothing, we've changed nothing. So go out and take action on something. So end with your leadership thoughts, Steve, that they can take away. Well, again, thanks, Randy and Lisa, for the time. I, I've loved the conversation. I really appreciate the fact that you reached out to me. And, and let me qualify it by I'm still learning. I'm still getting better. I still have a lot of things that I need to improve upon. So, you know, leadership is, is again, never finished. So I, I like to hear others talk about it so I can learn from them. But to me, the most important thing in, in, in my world regarding leadership is you got to care about your people. You know, if you don't really love your people and care about them, then you know, what are you doing to, to make them better? And then, you know, understanding that sometimes uh, after we've had the courage to communicate and, and talk to them about how they need to get better, if they're still not hitting the mark, then, you know, don't, don't mean to sound callous, but sometimes we just have to cut them from the herd uh, because not only do our citizens deserve better, but our other employees deserve better. We have to have their backs by, by not putting people in their work groups that don't uh, meet, meet the standard uh, of our culture. So, yeah, you know, care about your people, have the courage to communicate. Um, again, as we kind of talked about earlier, communicate, communicate, communicate. And that needs to be, in my opinion, through a variety of portals, email, face-to-face, different subgroup meetings. You know, you need to be leading through your other leaders so that when you're not there, everybody is talking about the same things, right? While putting their individual personality and characteristics into it, you know, because the, that diversity is, is so, uh, so beneficial to, to making the organization even better. But, you know, everybody needs to be on the same sheet of music, generally speaking, 
And then, you know, as we're having these different subgroups and, and meetings, make sure that everybody that's in a meeting knows part of your job of being in a meeting is going back out and talking to these things about those in your circle of influence, right? Particularly right. if it's a supervisory meeting. I, you know, the thing you hurt, you hate worse as a leader is you're walking down the hall and, hey, you know, Steve, you know, hey, I, hey, when are we going to do this? Or, hey, what about this? And this is something that you covered in a meeting a month yeah. ago. Like there's no worse feeling. So I always remind people when you're in a meeting, part of your job is to go out and disseminate this information to those around you. So, and I think we need to be committed to being the best. Uh, I'm very competitive. It's no secret. Uh, I love hiring athletes because they understand both team concept and competitiveness. I love the fact that we can be competitive to be being the best. One of the things I love about North Texas, 8 million people, 75 cities. It's a competitive environment. And I don't want to be the, the kid left behind, right? I want to be out there coming up with new programs, initiatives, ideas. I want to steal great ideas from other leaders and other organizations by giving them the credit. Because again, that makes us all better. So, you know, be committed to being the best. And again, that means don't just process the work. In between processing the work, how do we innovate and create to become better? Um, and I think, you know, we I always want to try to lead by influence. I want you to follow because you believe in what we're doing, not because I'm the city manager. Rank means nothing to me. Uh, I wore an insignia on my collar as the chief of police because I had to. I want you to do great things because you believe in what we're all doing. It's not about me. And then as a leader, when you get credit for great things, immediately give the credit back to those who actually did the work or believe in the purpose. And then finally, I think to serve is to lead. In my world, you know, if, if serve, serving and leading are, are almost one and the same thing, to me, when I serve, that means I want to lead. You know, the UNIDOS program and the Motor Cops for Kids program that I developed in 2002 as a motorcycle police officer, I didn't want credit. I just wanted to help the Shriners Hospital, and people that spoke Spanish as a first language. I, I just thought, you know, there was a need here that I could help address. And to me, that was just trying to serve. And that ended up being a leadership opportunity with me not even knowing it. Um, and then, you know, finally, don't try to take shortcuts. Uh, you know, if you want to be successful and you want to move up in, in a leadership role, challenge yourself. And that starts with bringing it every day, show up on time, work hard, treat others around you like you want to be treated. And generally speaking, good things will happen. So again, thank you guys so much for the time and the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, formal, Steve. Formal leaders, we're always urging people to get better. We're always encouraging people to grow. And it's got us to your point, it's got to start with us. I got one final question that my curiosity won't let me end the conversation without asking. You talked about, you, you began the conversation about passing it forward and hitting the ground as a police chief there, immediately going into succession planning kind of a mode and the whole passing it forward thing. In the conversation by talking to us about how you follow a, a mentor. So... I, I assume, Randy, you're talking about how the chief followed me and how I followed well, the city manager. That, that, that and now in your position, you know, following Mr. Hart and, yeah. you know, the, the people. So you have these, yeah, you, you have these settings, these meetings, these ceremonies, and you invite these people who've been so integral. And now, and now you got to follow 
you got to yeah. follow somebody that did that for you. I don't yeah. I'm curious your thoughts about it. Boy, it's a great question. I, I don't worry about it. That sounds really trivial. And, and let me explain. I told Daniel Sesney when he became chief, because we had, I think, accomplished a lot of really great things. I said, Daniel, don't ever try to be Steve Dye. I want you to be better than Steve Dye. You don't need to, if somebody tries to compare you to me, then just ignore it. I want you to be Daniel. Don't ever feel pressure that you have to do anything the way I did it. I made a lot of mistakes. I want you to learn from those and not make those same mistakes. Man, don't worry about it. And, and Randy, there's no way I can be Tom Hart. I'm not going to try to be Tom Hart. I think that, you know, what helped me is hopefully what I helped the chief with. Tom told everybody when he left, you know, Steve is going to do everything that I did and some things better than I did, and he's going to be better than me. And that's what I did for my chief of police. Again, that's great leadership. I think we need to set the table for those below us and the expectations that community, council, mayor, we don't want you to compare. We want them to be their own people, but we expect them to be better than us. That's why we developed them, and that's why we mentored them. Now, can you, if you think about it long enough, you can put pressure on yourself and that's only going to distract you from what you need to be doing. So I don't, I don't think about it. I don't worry about it because if I start doing either one of those things, I'm going to start making decisions differently and I'm going to really distract myself. So look, I, I'm going to be the best that I can be. And if someday that's not good enough for the city, then, then that's okay. Then, then, then I'll walk away and they'll find somebody who is a better fit. But I just, I just got more important things to worry about and that's serving my team and serving my citizens. But hopefully the, the good leaders before us can do what they did for me uh, to help set that up. And I think, you know, it, as we end the, on that note, I think we, we talk about a lot about leaning into who you are. Don't try to replicate somebody else because you cannot, you cannot do it. So lean into what you do well and make a better version of yourself with that. And then you can better influence others um, and grow them and get them to where not only they want to be, but we talk about service, serving others and doing for them what they can't do for themselves. Lisa, very wise comments. I, I think that's very well said. Thanks for being with us, Steve. We appreciate the conversation. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to dive more deeply into some of these things in a future day. If you're willing to come back. <laughs> I you bet, man. If a boy from Claude can ever help you again, just let me know. I'm always here. <laughs> we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching and listening to Grow Great, a city government leadership podcast. For Lisa Norris, I'm Randy Cantrell. Be well, do good, grow great. The website is growgreat.com.